0: Production. Dr. Garble Mate has worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown Eastside with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. We're increasingly attentive to the many faces of addiction and suffering and we're fluent in the languages of psychology and medication. However, Dr. Mate calls for a compassionate approach towards addiction, whether in ourselves or in others. Dr Maté believes that the source of addiction is not to be found in genes but in the early childhood environment. He offers up his intelligence on changing ourselves at a cellular level, the transformed reality most of us long to inhabit. This conversation is an exploration about many things, consciously raising kids for success, holding on to past traumas and the root of all addiction.
1: So the addiction is not the primary problem or disease. The addiction actually, in all cases, an attempt to solve the problem or something essential missing in our lives. And how that thing got lost is a matter of inquiry, but it always relates to childhood experience.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Garbo Maté is a New York Times bestselling author. Some of his books include In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and Hold On to Your Kids. This is a frank, honest, open and soul-bearing exchange about addiction, vulnerability, authenticity, suffering and attachment. Topics that have touched most people and families. Dr Mate is one of the most incredible human beings I have ever met. His wisdom is irreverent and it was an honour to share space with him. My hope is that Gabor's words awaken you to know there is a light out there. May we walk together on this path of healing to find it. Gabor Maté, you are an absolute pioneer in the fields of addiction and trauma. But let's start at the beginning. You were a GP, then a palliative care doctor, and then you started focusing on addiction. You have leant towards the really heavy, meaningful areas of medicine Can you tell us a bit about your journey?
1: Sure. So I was in family practice and um, I couldn't help noticing that who got sick and who didn't wasn't accidental. In other words, there were certain um, character traits, certain personality patterns, certain emotional dynamics, family histories, often related to trauma that then resulted in a person manifesting physical illness like cancer or rheumatoid arthritis autoimmune disease of any kind or mental illness and so on in other words i couldn't help noticing the larger picture what was disabling me for a while is that nothing in medical education prepares you for that because in medical school most part they separate the mind from the body the individual from the environment and you don't learn about all the fascinating studies and all the science that shows the mind body unity in health and illness, nor does it relate to childhood development from in utero onwards, let alone to the broader social issues. But but the fact is, human beings are part and parcel of a family culture, multi-generationally, and a social and political and economic culture. And all that shapes their brains and their physiology. So that I couldn't help noticing that. And at some point, I discovered that there's a vast scientific literature on the subject published in mainstream medical publications, tens of thousands of articles, makes no difference to medical practice. So there's a huge gap between medical practice and and what science shows us. And I began to write about that. So I wrote a number of books. Uh, After I was diagnosed with ADHD myself, I wrote a book about that. We can talk about it. I don't think it's a disease. It's not genetic, contrary to what most doctors think. Then I wrote a book on stress and health, called When the Body Says No, showing the interconnections between uh, physical illness and psychological dynamics. And uh, then I wrote a parenting book with a friend of mine called Hold On To Your Kids. And then finally, when I went to work with a highly addicted clientele in Vancouver's downtown east side here in BC, British Columbia, I wrote a book on addiction. And all what the books have in common is that I'm looking at the larger picture of how the individual manifests a much larger social and familiar dynamic and how the mind and the body cannot be separated in real life, either theoretically or scientifically. So, in a, not, not, along with that, I had to do my own work because I had my own issues. Mm. I had my own depression, my own addictive patterns, my own ADHD. So I had to start looking into my own life as to, you know, what happened to me and and, and what was I doing and what was driving me in my various compulsive patterns, for example, workaholism. And so in working on myself and in, in researching literature and dealing with clients of all kinds, I developed a perspective that I think is scientifically more grounded and at the same time more holistic necessarily than what is taught in medical schools. I hope that sums it up.
0: Yes. Well, I think you've been an absolute trailblazer in so many areas, but addiction being one of them. How do you define addiction?
1: So addiction, let's start with saying that it's a complex psychophysiological process. It, It involves our psychology and our physiology, brain physiology, body physiology, and so on. But It's manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure and relief in and therefore craves. So pleasure, relief, craving is the first criteria. But suffers negative consequences as a result of, that's the second criteria. And third, they have trouble giving it up despite negative consequences or they refuse to or they can't. Mm -hmm. So pleasure, craving, relief, short-term, negative outcomes, inability, or refusal to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And of course, I said nothing about substances. It could be to substances like nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, of course, opiates, stimulants. But it could also be to sex, to gambling, to pornography, to shopping, to eating, to work, to the internet, to internet gaming, to any extreme sports to any range of human activities. And the key issues are always, is there short-term relief and pleasure? Is there craving? Are there negative consequences personally, psychologically, economically, physiologically? And is there a difficulty letting go of it? That's what an addiction is, any addiction.
0: You say addiction is not a choice. It's not genetics. Can you explain that to us? Because I know that there is this preconceived idea that, say, my dad's an alcoholic, so I'm an alcoholic, or the gambling gene runs in my family.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm a medical doctor. If my kids became medical doctors, which they didn't, but if they had, would that prove that the practice of medicine is a genetic disorder? In other words, (laughs) obviously... Traits and behaviors can run in families without any genetic predisposition whatsoever. Number one, number two, there is no gambling gene. Why the hell would nature create a gambling gene? Yeah, you know. So uh, there, this is surprising to a lot of people. But I'm telling you the latest science: there's no gene or group of genes that causes any mental illness or any addiction. There's no group or group of genes that, if you have it, you will be mentally ill or addicted, nor is there any gene or group of genes without which you can't get addicted or mentally ill. So there are genes that create predispositions, that create susceptibilities for, we can talk about that. yeah. But they don't cause specific diseases. There are very few, there's a condition in my family Called muscular dystrophy. Yes, sir. my mother had it. My aunt had it. If you get the gene, you'll get the disease. Yeah. But those yeah. diseases are very, very, very rare, and they don't include addictions or mental illnesses. No matter how much people prattle on about genetic predispositions, and of course, if your father's an alcoholic, as you will hear me say, addiction is always rooted in childhood trauma. But what's it like to grow up in a home where the father's yes. an alcoholic? It's traumatic. And so that it's it's not the addiction we pass on, it's the trauma we pass on. Mm. And then the trauma, one of the responses to trauma, of course, is addiction. Mm -hmm. So these things are not genetic. And as for choice, well, I had never known a single person, including myself or any client I've ever worked with, that ever woke up on a Saturday morning and said, hey, my ambition is to become an addict. I'm going to choose to do it. No. It's not a choice, nor is it a disease that's inherited. In fact, it's not even a disease. And um, if, well, let me ask you this, sir. I mean, I mean, you can answer this or not answer this, but certainly I'm not asking for specifics. But just in your own given the definition I gave you, yeah. have you ever had an addictive pattern to anything whatsoever? You know, uh, you know
0: I was thinking about that. And also when I was doing research on you, you obviously reflect to your own life. And I, I feel that maybe like I'm addicted to my work a little bit. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> like, that's I was like, I think I spend a lot of time working. It gives me a high. And sometimes okay. I'm probably not there for my kids as much as I should be.
1: Well, that's what I want to ask you. So what is it that, it, whatever it is that anybody's addictive target is, whether it's drugs or work or sex or whatever it is, your kids work, what, what does it give you? that high, what is it? just define that from
0: it. I think it's it's hard, I think I, when I do an interview I get so excited and um, you know there's a beautiful energy that passes through me from the conversation I'm having but I would say that's a good thing uh, that's a good
1: thing, in itself that's a good thing,
0: yeah but I think that, I don't know would I be sad without it yeah I would but then I also feel like that's my purpose in life so it's that juggling act of going, well, am I addicted to it or am I not? I'm I'm well, well, not if sure. It, if,
1: it, if it causes negative effects and if you have trouble giving it up, yes. the fact that you like it and that you enjoy it and it gives you vitality, that's great.
0: Yeah, yes. But
1: if there's negative consequence to you or to ones close to you and you have trouble giving it up, then I classify it at least partially as an addiction. Yes. And, and then, the, then the question for me is, what does the addiction give you? So it gives you a sense of vitality that you maybe have trouble accessing in other areas of your life.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and even that vitality is our human heritage. Have you ever seen a baby or a little kid who is not vital,
0: mm-hmm. who is not full
1: of vitality? In other words, something was lost at some point. And then the addiction comes along to replace what was lost. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying, is that the addiction is not a primary disease or a choice. It comes along as a, substitute for something that along the course of development we've lost now for some people it's much more clear yes they're telling me that their addiction temporarily gives them pain relief or numbing or escape from stress or peace of mind or um, a sense of control mm. a sense of belonging and sense of connection those are all wonderful things but the thing is how did they lose them? Mm. So the addiction is not the primary problem or disease. The addiction actually, in all cases, an attempt to solve the problem or something essential missing in our lives. Yeah. How, and how that thing got lost is a matter of inquiry, but it always relates to childhood experience, in my
0: view. Can you tell us a bit about, you, you mentioned that you've had your own addictions. Can you tell us a bit about your... Early childhood trauma that you that you went through.
1: Well, so let's work it back. So one of the addictions I've had is um, is to work. It's still an issue in my life, you know, as my wife will tell you, you know. And uh, if you want to know if you're addicted, ask your partner, and uh, and don't ask yourself because you're lying to yourself. Yes. Uh, um, so work well. All right. See, work is great. I mean, we all need to work and we all have to have meaning in our lives. But the addictive part is when you keep doing it despite negative consequences. Okay? So, what message did I get as an infant? So, as a Jewish infant in Hungary under the Nazis, I definitely got the the message that the world didn't want me. In fact, the world wanted to kill me. Now, I I didn't know that personally, but I knew it through my mother who was terrorized and stressed and... um, incredibly challenged to the first year of my life as we lived under Nazi occupation in Budapest as her parents were killed in Auschwitz and my father was away in forced labor. She couldn't have been a happy woman. She, in fact, on the contrary. And then at one point to save my life, she gave me to a stranger and I didn't see her for six weeks, Mm -hmm. five weeks. Well, what message did I get? If my mother is unhappy, the message I get is that I'm not good enough. Because kids take everything personally. And if she gives me away, it means I'm not wanted. Well, if you're not good enough, and if you're not wanted, here's the solution. Everybody, go to medical school. They're going to want you all the time. Mm -hmm. And you can prove every day how great you are. And they're going to want you when they're being born and we're dying when they're dying in it, every minute in between, whenever a crisis. So, you get to prove to yourself every day that you're wanted and you're important. But since that sense of worth and value, which is an internal birthright of every human being, is missing because of the early environment, you have to keep proving it to yourself. So, it's never enough. In fact, it has to get more and more and more and more and more and more. So, there's that direct relationship between my workaholism and my early experience, by the way, when daddy's working all the time and is irritable when he's at home, what message do my children get? Yeah. They get the same message. This is how we pass it on. Unwittingly, it's not that we pass on the addiction and we pass on the trauma. And then the addiction arises as an attempt to soothe the pain of that trauma.
0: Wow. That's just, you know, that just makes so much sense. And as you say, there is a lot of suffering that goes into addiction. How does the trauma activate addiction?
1: So, first of all, let's look at what is trauma. Trauma is a wound. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's what the word actually means. It's a Greek word for wounding or wound. So, early trauma creates, first of all, all addictions, and I don't care what to, uh, whether it's behaviors or substances, have the purpose of easing emotional pain. Mm. So, my mantra is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. And if you look at my heavily substance-dependent addicts in the streets of downtown Eastside Vancouver, they were all severely traumatized as children. So trauma, to whatever degree you experience it, and it doesn't have to be that extreme, instills pain. And then you have a lifelong desire to soothe that pain. That's the first point. The second point is um, trauma disconnects you from yourself. So you have actually trouble feeling what you're experiencing. Now you need to have um external means to making yourself feel alive. So if you take a stimulant addict, they just they, they want that drug that gives them a sense of vitality. Yeah. But the gambling addict is after the same sense of vitality, that same dopamine hit in the brain. The porn addict is after the same thing. They just want to feel alive. Yeah. And because they got disconnected from their feelings because of early trauma, they need something external to make them feel really alive. So that's the second way. The third way is very direct. The human brain develops an interaction with the environment. And I have to have in the desk in front of me a little paragraph from a major medical article published in a medical journal eight ten years ago now. Yes. From Harvard.
0: Great.
1: And it says... The architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, which means that already the emotional states of the mom during pregnancy have an impact on the developing brain of the child. And the more stressed women are, and in this society, a lot of women are very stressed, not their fault. Their infants are receiving stress hormones, which interferes with their brain development for nine months. So, the architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, so that it's a long process for human beings, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all the health and learning and behavior that follow. Not some of the health learning, all the health and learning and behavior. Now, the second sentence the interactions of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain. And I know you've had Bruce Lipton on. Yes. And Bruce is so eloquent on how the environment turns genes on and off. So it's the interactions of genes and experiences that shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in the early childhood years. In other words, the most important influence on um, healthy brain development is the quality of adult-child relationships. Now, when those relationships are interfered with by economic crisis, war, tragedy, transgenerational trauma, parental depression, marital discord, anything else that, act, that can let alone abuse or direct overt severe trauma, all that will have an impact on brain development, which means that the circuits of addiction that are activated by the addictive process, the reward centers and the incentive centers and the emotional self-regulation centers, these are all shaped by early experience. We know this from thousands of studies in animals and human beings, and so therefore, Trauma gives you the pain, disconnects you from yourself, diminishes your vitality, makes you ashamed of yourself because kids take everything personally. So if anything goes wrong, they think it's their fault. Yeah. So there's a shame-based self and it shapes the brain wow. so that you're more prone to, for the addictive process to take hold when it's available to you. So trauma is um, the essential fact in, in all addictions. Trauma Broadly defined, various degrees. I was never as traumatized as my downtown east side of patients, all of whom had been severely hurt. All the women had been sexually abused. All the men had been neglected, beaten. Oh, I can't even tell you the details, although it's, it's described in my book. Um, it doesn't have to be to that degree. Um, but there was always a degree of trauma, wounding, Behind all addictions.
0: Wow. Why for so long as a society have we thought that it's the genetic makeup of someone rather than the environment? I mean, how, why do we believe that?
1: Well, we still think it. I mean, that's still the mantra. Well, yeah. well, here's what's amazing is that like, everything I'm saying is documented. It's not like I'm making it up.
0: Yeah.
1: It doesn't penetrate. Medical practice. Most addiction specialists don't even know what I'm talking about. Because yeah. they're not trained in it. Now, why not? Well, I give you a number of reasons, but there's two major ones. One is, from the, let's say that you're a parent and your adult child becomes addicted. Emotionally, which is easier for you to hear? That he's got a genetic problem that you couldn't help passing on, or that his problem is due to early childhood experience Mm -hmm. in your home, that's challenging. It's much easier and soothing to rely on a genetic explanation from the emotional psychological point of view. Secondly, it's simpler because we like to think in simple things. We like to think A causes B. So I give you an explanation like genes, Oh, okay, I get it, that's simple enough. Trauma is much more complex thing to think about. Thirdly, from a social point of view, If we took to heart the science that I'm translating to you now, we would change everything.
0: Mm.
1: We would change how we support young parents. We would change how we look after pregnant women. We would change how we run our schools, how we treat kids who are in trouble. how we create like in Australia do I have to tell you about the how the Aboriginal people were treated
0: Can we talk a bit about that because I think that's a fascinating thing I mean what they've had to endure is shocking
1: well it is the same in Canada so in Canada 30 percent of the jail population is Aboriginal Canadians indigenous Canadians they make up five percent of the population and in Australia a young male who's Aborigine has got something like a 16 to 19 percent risk not percent fold and 16 to 19 fold risk of being jailed than a caucasian male why because the way that colonialism has traumatized these people Mm -hmm. and how racism continues to traumatize them Mm -hmm. so it's not surprising that the most traumatized segments of the population are the ones who are the most likely to fall victim to addiction but for us to recognize that we'd have to change the whole social system Mm -hmm. We'd have to get rid of inequality. We'd have to get rid of um, laws that discriminate. We'd have to rethink our whole approach to social relationships. Mm -hmm. Much easier to say, well, it's gotta be the genes. Nothing we can do about it. So the genes kind of give us an easy out. On the other hand, let me ask you this question. Going back to my query to you about if you're a parent, If you're really a thoughtful parent, what would you rather believe? That your child's got genetically determined disorder or that he's got a problem of development because of early childhood experience and that given the right conditions, he can develop in a much better way.
0: Yeah, the second...
1: Yeah, so the second one is liberating. Yes. But emotionally, it's more challenging.
0: Yeah.
1: It's also not only liberating, it's also having to be scientifically right. So but but it's harder for people to hear that.
0: Absolutely. And you say the first 3 years of a child's life is so unbelievably pertinent. What 3 to 7? What are the things that we should be doing that, to allow our kids to flourish?
1: Well, so in my book on addiction, I have an appendix, which is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and I have an appendix on the prevention of addiction. And I'm saying that the prevention of addiction needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Because we know that if you stress animals in the laboratory or women who are stressed, their children during pregnancy are more likely to have addicted kids or mentally challenged kids in general later on. So therefore, we would make really sure that the mental health and emotional balance and stress support is available for pregnant women. So the, the prenatal visit wouldn't just be about blood tests and ultrasounds and and, uh, and scans. It would also be about, okay, let's look at your life and what stresses are you under and how can we help you, support you? And that also means social support when necessary. It would mean families that are traumatized they get a special support to deal with their trauma you know so what do you do in australia or canada we jail these kids Mm -hmm. and these adults what they need is support they need loving support to overcome the trauma that our societies have multi generationally imposed and continue to impose on them so that's what would be necessary then And this is a hard one in modern society, because if you look at how people used to parent, for example, how Canadian indigenous people used to parent or Australian Aboriginal people used to parent. They used to parent in hunter-gatherer groups like a tribe. And kids had multiple adults looking after them. And they used to play out in nature, free play out there in nature. And the mothers would breastfeed for two to five years. Mm -hmm. The average weaning age was four years in in, in hunter-gatherer groups. Kids are designed for that, mm. which means mothers need a lot of support so they're not at home alone parenting in isolation. That's totally unnatural. Yeah. But they need a lot of social support to be around other supportive adults. And they need the financial support at least for one parent to be at home with the kid for as long as possible. Mm. Ideally, in the beginning, it's the mom because she's the only one that can breastfeed. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but... In other words, we would look at the literature of how the brain develops, and we would apply it simple lessons, and we would put the dollars and the money there, which would save us a lot of expenditure later on in terms of mental health, physical health, and legal costs. So, in other words, we would really support... Now, we would also make sure... And this is another book of mine that if you haven't read it, then if you've got two kids, you've got to read this book. It's got to hold on to your kids, why parents need to matter more than peers. And I wrote this with a brilliant psychologist a friend of mine who's the main author, Gordon Neufeld. In our society, kids get too attached to other kids too early
0: mm.
1: to their detriment because the primary attachment should be to nurturing adults. So in our society, we have children influencing each other far too early. Now you have for the first time in history, we have a situation where generations of kids are more influenced by immature peers than by the healthy adults and allies. Mm. I'm not going to, we can talk about it, but that's what's going on. So we need to make sure that the primary attachments of our children remain to healthy, nurturing adults. And that also means keeping our kids off those damn cell phones. And, and, and social media. If I, if I was raising a kid today, I wouldn't let them go near a screen for seven or eight years. Yes. So I could go on and on. But in other words, we'd have to rethink how we live our lives.
0: How as parents, obviously being at home with them, I try and my, my kids now are eight and six and I try as much as I can to talk to them about life and, and give them really good lessons. And when I notice certain behavior in them, I I explain to them, you know, I talk to them about the law of cause and effect and kindness and all the things that I've learned. But then at the same time, they're going to school for majority of the day. And I mean, I am obviously at work. So, When I see them, it's not directly after work. I don't pick them up every single day, so there is a they they are with their peers more probably than they're with me. So then, to your point, how do I ensure that I am still that primary person that they're looking up to, rather than the kids that they're around?
1: Well, so the problem becomes much earlier. The problem starts much earlier. It starts in daycare and preschool. Yeah. Where from a early age on kids are spending more time with each other than with nurturing adults. Now well, the first thing I think you have to realize is this may be necessary owing to modern life, but it's completely unnatural. It runs against human nature. Yeah. And it runs against healthy child development. So we have to compensate for it. So that means at the end of in the school and in the daycare, the teachers are better be much more than just educators. Mm-hmm. They need to be solid emotional attachment figures for these kids, yeah. so that so that so that in the morning you can pass that attachment baton onto the teacher, and in the, the day they give it back to you. Yeah. But the kids are still relating emotionally to nurturing adults, and the schools are not set up that way. Mm. Uh, that is much more important. Remember what that article said: that the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood. In other words, daycare, preschool, and school, and high school. Their primary job is not to teach kids values or facts or skills, but to construct healthy brains. Mm-hmm. And the healthy brain will learn naturally and will acquire skills naturally. Uh, and it'll really be easy to teach them. But the necessary condition is that mutually responsive relationship with adults. So at the end of the day, when you see your kids again, don't assume that they're your kids. Mm-hmm. And as Gordon says, you have, to re- you have to win them back again. And Gordon says, my co-writer and mentor says, collect them before you direct them. Gather them under your wings again. Re-establish the, you know, have a warm hug and a Mm. wonderful family meal together, and then you can start teaching them. But get them back under your wing. On the weekend, don't farm them off to play with their peers all the time in the absence of adults, Mm. you know. And what you said about teaching them values, I hate to tell you, that's not that important because, because because values, this has been studied as well. Human beings develop healthy values when they're safe and they're brought up in nurturing attachments. So how you relate to them emotionally, how you receive them and hear them and see them and and communicate with them is much more important than the content of what you're telling them. Yes, yes. So, the short answer is you have to maintain that position as the alpha emotional person in our lives. And you have to do that in the face of modern conditions that tend to undermine it. It's not impossible, but it's a challenge.
0: From an emotional perspective, how should we best be there for our kids? I mean, say a kid has done something wrong or a child is crying about something. What is the best way for a parent to be able to be there emotionally for their kid, allowing them to then thrive in their everyday life?
1: Well, let's look at first of all, the advice that parents usually get. A lot of parents are told not to pick up a crying kid. Mm. Uh, let them get over it. You know, now tell that to a mother cat, okay? Mm. Or tell it to a mother bear to, to ignore their child's cries of distress. And, In Aboriginal societies, by the way, kids were not allowed to cry. When I say not allowed to cry, it's not that they were forbidden to cry. It says as soon as they whimpered, they were picked up and held and rocked and catered around. Why? Because if the child is distressed, cortisol, the stress hormone, is going through their brains. That interferes with brain development. Now, indigenous people who are still functioning in natural ways, they intuitively knew this. And that's why they always picked up their kids. And by and large, in small band hunter-gatherer groups where human beings evolved, kids were not hit. Mm. So, first of all, what is your panting instinct? When a kid is crying, what does your heart want to do?
0: Just hug them.
1: Listen to your heart, not yeah. to the experts. The yeah. experts are idiots. Yeah. They have no connection to the child's real emotional experience. Then when a the child does something wrong, quote-unquote, No, by the way, Something wrong is already a parental adult definition,
0: yeah
1: the kid is just being a kid mm. so wrong already is to set a certain tone to the conversation well you have to we use this phrase children act out right acting out
0: mm.
1: is that phrase used in Australia? yes, so when I see a kid is acting out, what do you see in your mind's
0: eye uh, them being disruptive or Right. Being, talking back, giving attitude, that kind
1: of thing. Exactly. Oh, my God, a kid has an attitude. What a surprise, you know. But... uh,
0: God, we as adults never have attitudes. I mean, God, I didn't know where they got that from.
1: But who... But that's not what acting out means, Mm. you see. Acting out is a really good English phrase. It means to portray in behavior... Something you haven't got the words to say in language. Yeah. So if you're playing a game of if you're playing a game of charades where you're forbidden to speak, what would you have to do? You'd have to act it out. Mm. If you landed in a country where nobody spoke your language, and you had to portray hunger, you would have to act it out. Kids are acting out their unverbalized emotional dynamics. Mm-hmm. Our job is to understand what distress they're acting out. And, and respond to their needs rather than to their behavior. Yeah. That doesn't mean permissiveness. Permissiveness is bad for the kid, but it also doesn't mean punishment. It also doesn't mean time out. It also doesn't mean saying to the kid, you're acceptable to me only if you behave in a way that I want you to, otherwise you're out of here. Mm. That's the wrong message. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways of dealing with that quote unquote wrong behavior. But the first way is to understand what's actually going on. Now, that doesn't mean you let a kid hit their brother. Your brother is not for hitting, you say in a stern voice. On the other hand, why not understand that that kid may be feeling emotionally deprived and is jealous of their brother? Yeah. And then the what you really deal with it in the long term is not through punishment or moral admonishment, but through meeting their emotional needs. They'll stop the hitting. So there's all kinds of ways to responding to wrong behavior. And most of the time, the parenting experts get it wrong because they focus on the behavior rather than on the child's emotional experience that is driving the behavior, the behavior being only a symptom.
0: Mm. What you're saying just makes so much sense. The other day, my daughter came home from school and she's only six. And she was telling me something that had happened and she was really upset about it and she started to cry. And so I said to her, do you, you know, come, like, let's come, let's have a hug. And so I didn't say anything to her. I just hugged her and she cried for quite a while and I stroked her back. And then she stopped. She seemed just kind of fine and then just went on with her every day. And I just thought, you know, just giving her that love, not needing to say anything I I felt her heartbeat against my chest, That the pain. I could feel her pain. You know, a mother feels the pain of their child. No one wants their child to be sad. And then she just went on her merry way. And I thought this, to your point, this is is what they need.
1: It is because it allows them to have their experience and move through it and know that they're supported and with the support they'll get through it so yes. they can start to trust their own process. That's exactly the right thing to do. A lot of parents, parents unfortunately, might have said, well, stop whining or get over it, or next time, here's what you do, yeah. or "Or don't be so sensitive. They just need to be received mm. and allowed to go through their own process. You might have said to her, honey, you're feeling sad, something like that, just to give her a word yeah. for what she's going through. Uh, but, but, I mean, that, that, that's that's a, that's a minor point. The point is that what she got was exactly what she needed. Yeah. A lot of children don't get that, unfortunately. Because, because we we're, because were made uncomfortable by their behavior yes. and we want to fix it.
0: Yes, that's so true. It's being uncomfortable, not wanting them to cry or feeling sad that they're crying, so wanting them to stop. Yeah. Talking about addiction,
1: Yeah.
0: how can kids, it might be two brothers, a brother and a sister, two sisters grow up in the same family and there could be a couple of siblings and one has an addiction and the others don't. How, from an environmental perspective, can it be so different?
1: Well, so no two children ever grow up in the same family.
0: Yeah.
1: For example, one child is the first child. Their experience of life is totally different than that of a second child who already has to share the space with somebody else. Yeah. The first child experiences the severe insult of somebody coming in and all of a sudden demanding mommy's attention that before used to be online. So it's a totally different experience, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, the parents' relationship to one another might be different from one child to the other. I mean, I know that in our family, as my marriage went through its various stages, our kids experienced different parents. Thirdly, uh, there might be a gender difference. There certainly is an age difference. So that when something happens to you at age one, that hits you very differently than when it happens to you at age five. So even the same thing happened, you didn't have the same experience. Mm. Fourthly, Children are born with different temperaments. Here's where genetics do come in. So genetics, some kids are just more sensitive temperamentally, which means they feel more. If they feel more, they'll have more pain when the same thing happens to them Mm -hmm. than a child who's less sensitive. And so there's all kinds of reasons why. and And then finally, each child evokes a slightly different part of the parent. It's not a question that you love one child more than the other or that you favor them, although that happens too, but it doesn't have to. You just relate to them differently. Your voice is slightly different when you talk to one kid or another, or your facial expression varies. And so they're experiencing different mothers. And so the great British child psychiatrist D.W. Winnicott said that even if a mother could be the same mother to all eight of her kids, which you couldn't be, but even if she could be, they all have eight different mothers because they're experiencing it through a different temperament. Yeah. So no two kids ever grew up in the same family. And furthermore, how many families you, you probably know where one child is really angry at the parents and maybe even claims that they're abused and the other kids are in total denial and they mm-hmm. say, no, it's a beautiful family.
0: Yeah. And none
1: of them are crazy. They just all grew up in different families. Yeah
0: important is it the relationship between the two parents
1: it's the key yeah. uh, as, a, as a, a therapist once said to me children swim in their parents' unconscious like fish in the sea mm-hmm. and the great spiritual teacher Thich Nhat Hanh who is mm. now in Vietnam I think yeah, and certainly has lived a long life and it's not very well anymore, but it's still going. He said once that the greatest gift that the parents can give their child is their own happiness. Because mm. when their parents are happy because the kids take everything personally, they think, oh, I must be a great person. Mm. I'm, I'm where I belong. The parents are not happy. I'm not talking about how much they love their kid. I'm talking about how comfortable are they with themselves. Yeah, Children pick up on their parents' unconscious. So the parents' relationship to one another is key Mm. to the child's emotional states. And uh, when there's a lot of stress in the family, the risk of um, conditions like ADHD and other childhood disorders goes up um, exponentially.
0: Wow. You have spoken about the quote, we have to suffer to (coughs) seek the truth. And I, I personally believe that's true. How do you see that?
1: Well, so that quote is from the great playwright Aeschylus from his play Agamemnon. And the chorus says that the gods created it in a way that we have to suffer into truth. Now, I don't think that's absolutely true. But unfortunately, that's how life works. Mm-hmm. So that um, for a lot of us, so I myself these questions that we're discussing and all the research that I then discovered and the work that I've done would not have happened had I not been instigated by my own suffering and the suffering of my own family. So there's something about suffering that kind of wakes us up that maybe, maybe we don't understand um, exactly what's going on and maybe need to do some work to find out what the truth is, you know? And uh, so that, that's just how people are. And and of course, if you look at something like major social transformations, like the French Revolution, it happened after a period of immense suffering in yeah. France and starvation and so on, you know? And and same thing on an individual level, is that an illness, an autoimmune disease, a cancer, a depression, an anxiety attack, an addiction issue, can certainly wake us up to seeking mm. what it is that is at the bottom of the suffering, and so suffering. Nobody should have it. I don't wish it on anybody. But I know you talked to Anita Morjani, and, and you know Anita wrote a book called "Dying to Be Me." Mm. In other words, she literally had to be literally on the deathbed, mm. literally, to wake up to the fact that she's been suppressing her real self all her life. Mm. And that, near death, really woke her up. I've written a book about that, Go when the body says no, very often, illness is a manifestation of us not being authentic to ourselves. I'm not going to the physiology of it, although it's very straightforward. But the point is, for a lot of people, illness, even terminal illness, surprisingly enough, I don't recommend it, but I've been told even by people in palliative care, that this illness is the best thing that ever happened to me because yeah. it woke me up to reality and to truth mm. and there's yeah. something with truth that a lot of people value more than value health itself now as a matter of fact i think that if illness comes along and you start seeking the truth of yourself in many cases that can help you overcome the illness mm. but not always but the point is suffering can act as a wake-up call yeah. um, again i don't recommend it to anybody But I don't have to, because life brings it. And then the question is, how do we relate to it? Now, one way to relate to suffering is to try to run away from it, which is what addictions are all about. And I don't blame anybody for going that way. But at some point, you might want to stop and say, okay, what's driving me? And what is in me that's causing my suffering?
0: Such wise words. Gabor, what is the best advice that you've ever been given?
1: You know, I've been asked that question um, before, and I can <clears throat> I can give you three pieces of advice. Okay, that I got. One is I had an aunt who was a physician and a writer. What a surprise! As was her father, and and the father died in Auschwitz. My aunt came to Aus- went to Auschwitz, but he, she came back weighing eight, 90 pounds or something. And she saw very, she saw me very clearly when I was an adolescent and a young man, and she quoted Shakespeare to me, and she said, to thine own self be true. I had no idea what she was talking about. I simply wasn't mature enough to understand it. In retrospect, that's just the advice I give to everybody now, but My poor aunt, who died of muscular dystrophy, she gave me that advice, long before I was ready to receive it. That's the first Mm. bit of advice. The second was from a Canadian, very well-known Canadian poet, who was a patient of mine when I was in family practice, and I said to him once, Warren, you know, there's this desire in me to write, but I don't know what to write. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll write when you've learned something that you want to teach the world. And a few years later, I started writing my books. Yeah,
0: beautiful.
1: And the third piece is came from the great psychiatrist and trauma specialist, Doctor Bessel van der Kolk, um, mm-hmm. who once over dinner or lunch said to me, "He's in Boston, but we were presenting at the same conference." And Bessel said to me, "Gabo, you know, you don't have to drag Auschwitz around with you everywhere you go," mm-hmm. which means. You don't have to allow that early experience of your family to define your view of yourself and of the world. Yeah. You can acknowledge that suffering and have that pain without letting it limit you mm-hmm. and limiting your sense of possibility. Now, again, Bessel said that to me, I think, five years ago. It took me a while to... I understood it intellectually right away, but it took a while to penetrate emotionally. Yeah. So I'd say those are the three... Um, uh, and what does, what does it come down to? Be authentic to yourself, and don't, act, don't drag the past around with you and express yourself, express your authentic self. So that's what those three pieces yes, of advice all join together in, in conveying.
0: What's your greatest hope for society today?
1: I like to look at possibilities. And that possibility is in the present. Mm. It may not be realized in the present, but it's with us all the time. And the possibility is for people to wake up and see the truth about themselves as individual, and about the societies that they live in, and not to be, not not to be afraid to be disillusioned. You know that phrase, disillusionment. Yes, yes. I was disillusioned. I say, congratulations. Would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would you rather believe in something that's not true or see the reality of things? So the possibility that I uh, put a lot of stock in is that people will wake up to the truth of their own lives and of the, of the social world that they live in. And, I'm, and COVID maybe will help us with that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Maybe. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn?
1: Everything I've just told you, I'm still, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm still, I'm still learning. Um, I, uh, I, I've said this before, but I, I, I don't mind repeating it. Yeah. I've written my epitaph, uh, carved on my gravestone. It's gonna be, it's gonna say, it was a lot more work than I had anticipated. <laughs> um, believe me, every day I'm having to learn this stuff,
0: mm.
1: because it's so contrary to our conditioning. Now thank God I've absorbed it more deeply than I did say two years ago or five years ago, or let alone 20 or 30 years ago, but it's on ongoing. So that learning never stops.
0: What is a life of greatness to you?
1: To thine own self be true. You know, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's you know, Martin Buber, who was a Jewish philosopher, and he wrote this book called Tales of the Hasidim, and Hasids were, spiritual teachers and adepts, I think, in the 18th century uh, Eastern Europe. And one rabbi taught his followers, he said that uh, when I get to heaven, they're not going to ask me, why wasn't I the great Moses or the great Isaiah? They're going to ask me, why why weren't you the great you? So, greatness is simply um, being oneself in the face of circumstances that demand that you suppress yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, some of us, that greatness can manifest on a much more public scale because of circumstance, skill, social conditions. And for others, that greatness just shows up in the truth of their own lives. Ultimately, it doesn't matter.
0: Gabor Mate, you are an absolute trailblazer. Thank you for all the work that you've done. I mean, you've changed the lives of so many people, and today's conversation was just absolutely outstanding. Thank you so much.
1: It was my great pleasure. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you.
0: For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to saragrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.